0: Now we don't
1: have any value. It's like they gave him that voice on purpose to like... uh like they're trying to trigger uncanny valley like they're aware oh, of it, it and they're they're like leaning into it mm. it'd be like making an android where you make the face very nearly but not quite human like nothing's quite aligned right absolutely or the right proportions it's fantastic um mm. i have uh the amount of like uh post-covid psychosis that i think all of us have been undergoing in the midst of this uh, has made me round the dial, and now I love Craig. I used to hate Craig. Um, <laughs> would like fill me with like, uh, like rattling unease. So there's um, there's this uh gothic, this Victorian era gothic storyteller named Mr. James who wrote um mm. a collection of stories called Ghost Stories for an Antiquary. Um, that's one of the best like Victorian era gothic horror collections that you could find. And there is a, a story in it called um it's like a whistle for me dear lad and i shall come something like that um stephen wilson actually based the song on that one and it's about oh, a wow. guy who finds a weird flute in a uh, graveyard and he toots on it and he hears a weird rattling in the distance and for the rest of the story the rattling just kind of gets closer and it ends before anything happens but you know uh and that's that's craig to me is what i'm saying <laughs> the omin- ominous flute yeah, it's like he gets he gets nearer anytime I boot him up, the voice is like a little bit closer to being right behind me. Um, I'm imagining it's going to be like a, I don't know, the Five Nights at Freddy's uh, yeah. bear name, but you know. Totally. If enough people activate him, he
0: gains sentience, I think.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. I have too much skin and he's going to take care of that problem for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, welcome everyone to, uh, Death Sentence. This is, uh, kind of a special episode. So obviously, as you can tell, uh, I'm Langdon, as you, as you all know, um, Eden and Gareth are not on this episode. Uh, Gareth, by the way, is, uh, this is going to be the first episode out since this became official. He's officially back, uh, on the show. Obviously, we had an episode with him recently that was sort of to see how everything still felt, felt great. So now we're going to have three hosts and we're going to be rotating around a lot. And that will let us cover a lot of different stuff because anyone who's been listening for a while knows the kind of conversations and stuff that me and Gareth would cover was a little bit different than the stuff that me and Eden would cover. The stuff Eden would cover on his own was different from the stuff Gareth would cover on his own. So it opens up a lot more doors. Uh, Uh, This is a conversation that I'm having. Uh, with a friend that I've known on Twitter for for quite a while. It's been like three, four years, some goofy amount of time. Like I was looking back on timeline stuff and time's fucking fake, especially since COVID. So who cares? Uh, <laughs> uh, this is uh, Richard S.E. Um, I ran into their work uh, through their work on Billboard um have a mutual love of metal and then it turns out they're also like a really killer critic of especially pop music just like incredible writing on that end uh thank you thank you too kind ab- absolutely <laughs> i mean well i mean as you know there's a lot of bad writing about music like a lot oh like, yeah like a shitload um and some of it, like, you kind of get... Like, this isn't to throw anyone under the bus. Like, what, the reality of if you try to do something like this for a living, you're not going to be at 100 all the time because no one's at 100 mm. for any of their job all the time. That's stupid. Um, but that that's more than it makes it special when someone is consistently really good rather than, like, shitting down someone's throat when, like, I don't know, maybe they threw up an article on an off day because they had to make rent or something. Um, but, yeah, this... Uh, wanted to throw this together quick and it turns out not quite quick enough because um, I have a lot of thoughts about the whole Spotify thing, even prior to the Joe Rogan and Neil Young uh, blow up that happened recently. That one obviously has brought it back to the attention of a lot of people, but for anyone listening to this, you're going to be familiar with, because most of this listenership is going to be familiar with things like extreme metal, um, the world of hardcore, the world of grind and prog rock and alternative music and all that kind of stuff Uh, so the whole buying versus streaming music thing has been in the atmosphere in that space for quite a while and for obvious reason Um, you can loop in certain antagonisms like the antagonism toward Adele for printing as many um, or pressing as many Mm -hmm. vinyl copies of her newest record um, which she got priority and that pushed back a bunch of other labels and disrupted a lot of stuff you see the weird and at times just simply baldly uh misogynistic uh rage towards taylor swift for blank blank sometimes you're like i can maybe kind of follow that like if i if i squint and other times you're like nah you're being a weirdo like you you picked up a distortion pedal and decided that women are bad, and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Like, I, there's no clear road from one to the other, but you found it. Um, but obviously, the Neil Young and Joe Rogan thing brought um, everything to the forefront, and in the wake of this, um, Richard, who's also uh, a really astute critic and uses a lot of... Uh, Marxist analytic and material analytic stuff. um, I made just this quick thread about like, here are some thumbnail thoughts about this. And I basically went through and was like, yes, yes. Fucking mind meld. Yes. We should talk about this. And literally that was maybe, I think three days ago, three, four days ago. Uh, Try to whip this up quick. And in in the meantime the fucking hit piece thing happens where someone gains access to the spotify api and turns every single piece of music that's ever been listed on spotify into an nft without the consent of anyone (laughs) which uh that is truly absurd like
0: i almost want to think it was like a false flag or something to like you know get people even more
1: (laughs) anti-nfts you know it's just so absurd I have, I have a lot of specific thoughts about that one since people have done yeah. already some quick deep dives on like the people behind it the paints mm. a really um a really awful picture that actually fits uh the general shape i think of a lot of our shared uh thoughts on this topic so Absolutely. um first feel free to give a thumbnail on uh your take on the whole joe rogan neil young thing obviously there's a lot of fucking angles to it so i don't think (laughs) don't feel uh pressed to make it encyclopedic off the jump sure well i mean i mean i've listened to a little
0: bit of joe rogan right like not that much but i i guess i get the appeal like at least in the way that he is a conversationalist and he seems to be like, a pretty curious dude, right? That is his appeal. Yeah. But also being, like, a weird libertarian, that is <laughs> also his downfall. Um, when you don't have things like fact-checking and etc. cetera. Um, I don't have that strong opinion on, like, this, the recent, like, culture war controversy around him, like, just by itself. Um, to me, yeah, I do see it as problematic that Spotify have $100 million to pay him which is definitely more than they've ever paid any single artist. Um, but to me, it it really highlights like the deeper problems with like Spotify and the royalty distribution method. Yeah. Again, like where is this money coming from? Who is it going to? Why you know? Why is the distribution platform making so much money at the expense of the artists? Um, and like, what is the role of Spotify in all this? Because they're not the people who like created the problems with like royalties historically in the music industry. This is actually a problem that's been going on for like a hundred years, basically since the invention of recorded music. So I feel like every, you know, whenever we want to blame like Spotify or Joe Rogan, yeah, blame them all you want, but there, there are like much deeper issues at the root. And like, I don't think we've really come up with a solution for them yet. Like, if we can identify yeah. the problem, like, that's uh, an achievement in itself, but, yeah, what what are the next steps? Who knows, you know? So, uh,
1: as someone who keeps that Hegel on deck, it's now due to reordering my, uh, my office space. It's no longer within easy arms reach. Uh, you can probably tell based on my shifting voice that I'm leaning back and gesturing with my arm towards the Hegel. But, uh, You're moving through the meta- the metaverse. <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm becoming really shitty looking 3D. Um, <laughs> adjusting the reverb on your voice. So uh, yeah, I'm <laughs> mentioning that because obviously uh, one of the first big things of any kind of Marxist analytic of anything is you got to have your, your materialism, you got to have your historical dialectics, all that kind of stuff. And it's mm. pretty easy to look at here in, in a way that confirms basically everything that you said, which is, a lot of times we wind up seeing people want to isolate um, for the culture war end. they want to isolate Joe Rogan as somehow uh, uniquely at fault. And Mm. even, even when you press them on the like, well, no, I know there's a broader culture. I just, then you almost want to tell them like, do you think simply getting rid of Joe Rogan and his show will solve this? It will certainly solve certain things from being exacerbated, but it's sort of like when, Trump got removed from Twitter and everyone clapped. And then you're like, well, nothing's different. We, in America, we still have camps on the border for Brown children being separated from their families, which is happening at the same rate as under Trump. Um, but now mean man doesn't make ugly tweets. So we don't really care. Or certain people don't really care. Certain people have continued to care and continue to do good activism on that. But, um, And the same thing kind of the same thing applies to Spotify is that people tend to ignore historically, how did Spotify rise and capture as many users and as much goodwill as it did. Um, And that requires that requires as, as you kind of implied, a deeper understanding of the broader material conditions that recorded music has been under for its entire duration. Like, not to say that this is a good or a bad thing, but the fact that people could make recordings of music and then make a living based on that is historically an incredibly narrow event. Um, Correct. Regardless yes. on whether we think it should continue, which I, I die of a lot of musician friends. It probably should continue. Um, yes. Spoiler: um, all That's happen, my. Will happen
0: at all? You know. Yeah. For
1: some people. Yeah. Um, but the reality is, a, a, as mentioned, um we see even as early as like the, the proto record labels of like the thirties and forties that were sort of breaking away from radio to sort of capture recorded music, like as, uh, as a thing separate from live performance and radio performance, um, they immediately started locking up um, the rights to material. We we even have further back than that, the whole tin pan alley. um, Yeah being named that because you literally had like in songwriters row uh it got its name for a reason you would have dozens of songwriters locked into a room and none of them had the rights to anything they wrote all they did all day was write music constantly um and and you didn't even recently until recently like a lot of the laws around songwriting and royalties
0: you had in the u.s were actually like written around that period and designed for music and had effectively not been updated until um there was the Music Modernization Act of a couple of years ago, MMA, great yeah. uh, acronym. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you like you wind up seeing things like uh this has ripple effects where um mm. the Grammys have a separate categories for best record and best song and best album due to yeah. these collapsing historic categories that never quite fully gave way, um, but also never quite fully remained separate in the popular eye. Where if you ask a regular person who made this song, that's going to be very different from if you ask an industry vet the exact same question. Even the notion of, like, performance royalties was dreamed up along the way, because it was considered, like, a band gets paid, like, by event organizers to just play music someone else has written, but you don't get shit for it. Like, you're just... You're mm-hmm. you're like a drum monkey that they wind up and they're like, play the sheet music monkey. Um like the old cymbal monkeys that would, you know. Uh yeah, and so like we wind up getting these historical build- I mean, obviously if you trace through the full history of it, you get the um record companies ballooning to ludicrous size between the sixties and seventies and maintaining this like Sociopathically capitalistic size, uh, up until things like Napster and peer to peer downloading threatened to burst the entire bubble. Like, we get this weird rosy, rosy glass, uh, image of like the 90s and like how you used to be able to make a living, but that also doesn't really align to like, as someone who grew up in a semi rural area into alternative music in the 90s, I had to like hunt for even something like uh, Smashing Pumpkins albums. Right, yeah. Like, getting getting by the money banks of the Wooshka, the Nirvana live record, I had to, like, go to another town to find it. And I had to call places to make sure that they would have it, because they'd get, like, two copies. And, like, this... And even then, you're buying it for exorbitant prices. So it really wasn't a great space for that kind of thing unless you were in a city, but even then you won't you only get the regionalism of things like DC hardcore versus LA Hardcore versus New York hardcore for one genre's ni- like very niche element, because it was actually relatively hard to even get music from another city, unless it was broadly distributed. So Napster comes in and fucks up a lot of people's revenue streams, but all of a sudden you can get music, and that's Obviously, like, uh, a really insane double-edged sword to grapple yeah. with. There's a I, lot of bad and a lot of good with it, and it's not really clear who uh, who would benefit from this uh, broadly. Yeah, I've actually heard a
0: pretty good, like, historical counter-argument recently. I think it was by um, David treat- Turner, who does a newsletter called Penny Fractions, but he... Like makes the case that like Napster did not have as direct an effect on the music industry's decline as we think it did. Um, just there was like a there were a lot, a lot of other factors, but certainly like in the popular consciousness, Napster is what awakened people to the fact that a the labels were charging too fucking much and not passing that the royalties to the artists, and also, um,
1: yeah, that there was another way. Yeah. Yeah, You, you wind up seeing things like through the nineties, alternative bands, like the major, we forget a lot of times that the major thing that made you a sellout in certain spaces was signing to a major label and not because Mm. of the notion of now you're going to get a bunch of money and think that you're better than other people. It was even things as little as your record will get distributed to stores and that violates some weird, ethos of underground metal and punk and electronic music and whatever that like no one is supposed to hear your record unless they fucking hunt you down in the woods or some shit like yeah um so we had a lot of tensions around that and obviously Napster leveraged against this already cracked shell uh the classic like maybe it's a brick that breaks the camel's back but there's already a bunch of shit on it um, and Spotify, if anything, is the. F- it, it's pretty clear to see in a historical context the first instance of someone at least promising a way to reconcile those two modes of like everyone has permanent access to music now, but no one's making anything. And we saw. Well, what the do you fir- of the iTunes store just before that? So that comes before Spotify in the timeline. That. That, I think, is an interesting split model as well um, that Mm. partly was sustained off of the back that a dollar a song feels pretty good in a lot of contexts, and the pressure points more came from these ancillary outside contexts. Like, let's say you have a catalog artist, um, like Yes, for example, where... Mm close to the edge has three songs on it, but it's 40 minutes long. Do you charge a dollar for each song? And they obviously later adjusted that they had things like, well, you can toggle certain songs off for song purchase and you can make them only albums and all that kind of stuff. And we also saw in parallel very shortly after um, the Apple store emerged, like only within about maybe five years is the birth of YouTube. Um, Actually, it's a little more than five years, but YouTube really being sort of, like, the first streaming platform, albeit still technically illegal, in that you'd see a lot of people uploading these, like, really obscure tracks onto YouTube that you could just go watch, and they'd have the shittiest videos set to them with, like, the ugliest fonts in the world and, like, single-color backgrounds. Um, But all of a sudden, you could, like, oh, I'm interested in, like, the dwarves. Like this, this noise rock band that, you know, I could never find any records of. Oh, their entire catalog is on YouTube. Um, you also had the parallel problems with the iTunes store of who could access uploading music to it. And while there were a lot of labels that had access, you didn't really have like underground music having a real chance there. And so, in swoops, like in the late 2000s, this Europe-only thing called Spotify that's based out of Sweden, and it's this experimental thing. You pay X amount of dollars, and you can listen to as much as you want, and they they aren't paying that much, but that's because they don't have many in the way of users, and they haven't really expanded to America yet if you wanted to get an American... It, I think it was inv- invitation-only for a while, kind of like Gmail, like way back when. Um... And this sort of begins the bill of sale that that built how they got so many users of like, oh, we just haven't hit a threshold where we can pay out artists. And they present this um what we now know to be a largely fictional uh uh equation for how they generate how much money they get. Where it's like, oh, we generate how many sales or streams have happened totally. total. And how much right. I bought another one at a fairly reasonable price. If you listen to a lot of music, you basically have done quite literally walking up and giving like a handful of pennies to, to random artists. And that's not really. And it's like, oh, well, well at, you know, less than a number of pennies, if anything. Well, so this is this is even before the reality yes. of their equation hits. Yeah. Like this is if no one takes anything off the top and your ten dollars magically goes directly to the artist. Like you're already kind of screwing people. Um, we can make arguments about like, because there are th- there are questions about say like access to art and how yeah. how much it should be gated behind finance. Um, but then the reality is that we're enmeshed in a capitalist world, whether we yeah, want probably. to be in one or not. You know, all this those are complicated questions. Those aren't easy mm-hmm. to answer. But it inevitably. For for the last bit of the sort of historical thing, we wind up seeing eventually the rise of Bandcamp, which, depending on who you talk to, is presented as, like, the anti-Spotify. Um, and normally the people who will do so will be very quick to negate their own words because it kind of builds you into an intractable position from either end. Because Bandcamp's whole thing is like, oh, anyone can upload, so now Super Underground stuff has the same platform as the most mainstream stuff, so long as it's on our site. Um, And it's not really designed for anything other than being a storefront. So you, your band, will link people to your page. This isn't something that you're meant to search. This isn't really something that you're meant to browse on a user end. It's more like instead of you having to, in the 90s or early 2000s, set up your own band's website in order to sell your t-shirt or something, you can just... Do it through here. Everything's streamlined and we just take a little bit off the top for maintaining the tech end. Okay, that's fine. Um, But then the problem comes when people go, I want you to drop Spotify, which is meets this convenience threshold for so many people. And I want you to use Bandcamp. Yes. And then you look over at Bandcamp and it is like a desert of features. It is so bare bones. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's not necessarily their fault. From my understanding, it's a very small team. They have a very focused idea on what their project is. And they never really asked to be the anti-Spotify. But it mm. does make it like, you're never going to get a conversion rate that, that's that's going to be meaningful to, to do a dent to Spotify in any, in any fashion.
0: Correct. Because Bandcamp comes from a time where we were still ripping MP3s and, you know, putting them on our iPods and stuff like that. And that's just not the paradigm anymore. We expect everything to be in the cloud and to be conveniently streamable. But yeah, Bandcamp is not really... You can stream off Bandcamp, but I don't really know anyone who does.
1: Yeah. You know? It's like I will do it at my computer when I'm writing about something or deciding on purchases and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the second I leave my house, I have the Bandcamp app. I have barely touched it. Same. Um, And that's like, I love the platform. This is not a knock to the platform. This is just, even as someone who likes it a lot, there's these. um, Now, obviously there's sort of a missing factor to all of this because merely looking at history, it just sort of looks like, okay, well, Spotify is inevitable and we can't really do anything. But this gets to the part of, and this is in your initial thread, of like the crux of the missing, the missing element when we talk about all of this is. The, the basic Marxist argument, who has done the labor and who owns the rights to that labor? Yeah, exactly. Sorry. Yeah. You prompting me there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I, this is, I wish there was a, I wish we were on video uh, just now so I could like point yeah. directly at the camera, but I'll add i oh, uh, I'll add extra yeah. reverb there to make sure that it like takes up a, an inordinate amount of time. Like, oh, he was pr- uh, Langdon was, was prompting Richard, like, through, through like, celestial power there.
0: I'm, like, still waking up. It's, like, morning in Australia, so I'm, like, zoning in to all of this. Um, Look, we keep
1: it raw and we keep it real. That's what people have tuned in for. We're not bullshitting them. I'm not editing this. <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, yeah, obviously, like, the whole thing with
0: Spotify is, like, they exist and profit off of artists who have created this labor but like who who created this paradigm where the distributors are making like exponentially more money than the artists it's spotify and it's the major labels because the the impression that i have right is that part of the way spotify gained a foothold in the market is um essentially by like trying to partner with the three majors, right? They gave yeah. the three majors um, a significant amount of stock in their company, um, which when you think about it, that is actually a pretty big conflict of interest because the labels were investing in the streaming platform that guaranteed that their artists would la- make less money. But the success of that platform meant that they um got you higher stock value out of it all so yeah very very strange situation and um beyond even beyond that it was like spotify that set the royalty rate at like 0.01 cents a stream or something like that um it was spotify who set that rate um but like why why set it so low in the first place why not make it one cent from day one you know yeah and the answer is ultimately to get a foothold
1: but to whose benefit you know it's so we it becomes the classic um the classic problem when analyzing labor uh and mm. you can tell who approaches this problem from a marxist versus non-marxist perspective because it's it becomes basically if you're using capitalist logic to look at this at some point you go, well, this sucks, but also um, there's nothing that can be done. So the end, uh, life yeah. is just bad. And it really, it requires the leveraging of going like, well, the first laborers, we should say, because it's uh, these aren't the only laborers in the world of art, but the first laborers in the world of music are the musicians who make the music. Now, obviously you need to start building out from there because people playing in their room aren't doing that they, they're you they aren't doing anything that you're able to listen to um there are some steps there so they need instruments and cables and blah, blah 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 but they're paying those people already so that's already taken care of so we can sort of mentally triage that they now need you know engineers producers um all that kind of stuff to make to make a recording possible okay normally those people are baked into the payment as well sometimes they get percentage points on a record especially for bigger pop records or for um depending on who the producer is for a hip hop record sometimes they get a flat payment sometimes yeah. they get percentage depends but okay so that's all wrapped in it's at this point you have a finished product oh there's also like artists to do like layouts and and your cover art and all that kind of stuff those people are normally paid per gig they're not normally given percentage points um so brass tacks economics at the end of this, you have the small handful of people outside of the musicians themselves. You also have things like managers and musicians and uh, people who handle like direct business work for the musicians that aren't playing the instruments. And uh fun fact, most mm-hmm. bands will have an LLC named after the band and that's how they employ all these other people. And that's um, mm-hmm. it's weird how you don't, People will want to talk about the economics of Spotify, and they will use their fantastical powers to not discuss the economics of any other facet of music. Um, exactly, which seems to like magically make Spotify both uniquely evil and then also intractably evil. Yeah, as opposed to like this is a very clear paradigm that's existed for a while that has a f- a fairly clear broadband solution in terms of the specific things that would need to happen, it's murkier, but in terms of, like, it needs to be by this vector is pretty clear. Um, It's at this point that labels emerge, and in a perfect, not even a perfect, in an imperfect, more socialist world, the role of the label as, hey, we market and distribute your record. Like, you're busy making these songs and making these records and putting on these shows. But someone needs to go to a store and go, why should you stock one copy of my of this band I represent and not one copy of that band? Why should you yeah. have 10 copies of mine instead of one copy of 10 different bands? Like, someone needs to do that. Someone needs to have people that they can call in Denmark and in Australia and in New York and in Shanghai and, you know, all this kinds of stuff. Yeah. And they and also like, okay. fund the recording. Like, to, yeah. their, their relationship with the artist
0: is they're like a bank, basically. It's yeah. Like a high interest bank. Um, very strange.
1: And so you're (laughs) like, okay, in, in a perfect world, there's still, that's part of the labor. Like these people should, and like someone has to do that work and it's going to be someone's full day job. Okay. We're not going to cut these people out, but you know, realistically you bring them in as like equal partners the way that you would in any other business. And it's exactly at this moment that shit goes completely off the rails because basically from day one of the of the music industry the minute it gets to a label you're talking about oh well we're going to take like very high double digit percentages of your royalties sometimes up to 100% mm. until we get payback that's all the money that we give you to not just pay for the studio but that's to pay for the producer to come to the studio that's to pay for the engineer to like mic up your record or mic up uh, your instruments. That's to pay for. Um, oh, you had a couple songwriters touch up. You know your song. Someone's got to pay them. So listing off all of these things. So with some very bad contracts, an artist, even if they pay for these things themselves, they still get lumped into the amount they have to pay back uh, to a label because it's just straight vampirism. Um, yeah. And then even after they hit payback, they normally take these massive double-digit royalty cuts out of it. Like, very famously, the most famous pop example in... (laughs) Let me rewind that. The most famous pop example prior to Taylor Swift and her uh, ultimate fuck-you move that fucking rules... (laughs) Um, Absolute queen shit there. Um, was, Was Drake dropping his... EP slash mixtape slash studio album. If you're reading this, it's too late. Where the entire genesis of that was, he signed to Cash Money, which was the vanity label ran by uh uh Lil Wayne. ran by Lil Wayne. Yeah, that was signed. That was under another uh, vanity label ran by Birdman, and that was signed to Warner Brothers. And the percentage breakdown. For Drake, like, like someone as huge as Drake is, he paid out nearly thirty three percent to Warner Brothers, then nearly thirty three percent to uh, Birdman's label, and then I think it was like twenty five percent to uh to Lil Wayne's sub label, and so he's keeping this like very minuscule chunk. That's wild,
0: and I'm I'm guessing that's on the master recording, not the songwriting, right? Yeah.
1: So yeah, yeah, it, the the yeah that was for like the recorded material. Um, the percentages on the songwriting were different, but not substantially better. And that's right. why one that's why the record has the title it does because he famously didn't have a clause that many record labels would have, which is that you have to submit your recording to them ahead of time so that they can decide. One, do we accept it? And then two, how do we market it? Who do we get in contact with? You know, make sure that, like what Adele did, where she's like, I have to finish the recording in order to make sure that they press uh, approximately 1 billion vinyl copies of this record. So if like um, uh, three people or everyone in America wanted three copies, they could have one. (laughs) (laughs) Um and that you know that takes lead time and all that kind of stuff. Anyone in the business world is going to recognize lead time and how that fucks up all your timetables. Um, but he didn't have that, so he whips up this. It's eighty minutes worth of material, and uh, he technically had a different contract for Warner Brothers for I forget the name of Birdman's vanity label and for Cash Money. Um, depending on what label it was submitted under it was listed as an EP, a, an LP, and a mixtape. Right. I think Young Money is um, Wayne's vanity. Yeah, Young Money Cash is Money. Wayne's and Cash Money is Birdman's. Yeah. So when it was through Warner Brother, I think it was only like an EP. Um, when it was through Cash Money, it was an LP. And when it was through Young Money, it was mixtape. I could, I could get those exact ones wrong, but it was dependent on what would free him from the contracts he wanted to be out of and what would keep uh-huh. him working with the people that he continued to want to work with. And because there was no oversight clause that required them to be able to look at it, he th- that's why it's called If You're Reading This, It's Too Late, because it fulfilled his record contracts for two different groups he didn't want to work with while maintaining strong working relationship with the third. Um Owl move. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> and so
1: it's like Drake kind of sucks as a person and his music has been very spotty recently, yeah. to be um polite. But that that was a that was that was a baller move. And obviously more recently, uh I know obviously a big favorite of Richards considering how much uh they've written about Taylor. Um Taylor Swift does the whole thing of finding out Scooter Libby, this fucking dipshit, <laughs> um, owns all the rights to her music. So she's like, I own the songwriting royalties, so I'm just going to record brand new versions. Um, which have been killing it, by the way. Those things are so sick. But... The real I'll- fascinating thought experiment
0: um, that she's yeah. been doing there. Because it's like, she... Um, <clears throat> obviously her motivation to record them was like purely financial, but um, like... Uh, yeah, the whole thing is like, do, do they transcend the originals? Um how how are they like a different moment in time, the originals? Um and some some of them are like basically Xerox carbon copies, and others have been like really like different and really subtle, but like uh really interesting ways. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's it it's the classic. So um Oh everyone, are you ready for some literature? So uh <laughs> uh Borhe has a short story called Pierre Menard, Author of the Quixote. And this touches on a literary theoretical um, notion that it had become prevalent in the mid 20th century, which is that um, texts are not unique to their author. They are relational to the time, not just that they were made, but that they're experienced. Like a a text can take on a real valence that the author could not have intended or foreseen, but also is um, inextractable from the text. And this is replicated by the character Pierre Menard um, rewriting his version of Don Quixote that just happens to be character by character exactly the same as the original. So when, when I say character, I mean every space is in the same spot. Every comma is in the same spot. And the notion being that a man of, at that point, the 1940s writing exactly like a Spaniard from the 1300s, even mm-hmm. if the story is exactly the same, it means a different thing for him to have written that than for a Spaniard of the 1300s to have written that.
0: Absolutely. Gus um, is Hand's Psycho, another great example.
1: Yeah. Um, where That that was, for people who don't know, that was a shot-for-shot remake. Um with mystifyingly enough, Vince Vaughn, who you can't, in my opinion, you can't pick a man who is physically intimidating to play Norman Bates. <laughs> Cause I'm like, actually, I'm like, Oh, the guy who looks like a psychopathic murder killer is a psychopathic murder killer. That's crazy. That's nuts. Um, but yeah, other than uh, Gus Van Zandt was very open about, uh, his motivation for doing that, which was wanting to internalize a lot of the, uh, a lot of the filmmaking, work that Hitchcock did. And it's very different to watch a film than to attempt to replicate it exactly. And you see that in the music world a lot where it's like, when you're trying to learn the style of someone, you're encouraged to learn like every pick scrape and every slide and every like missed note. Um, That's kind of why like learning Nirvana songs properly is much harder than you'd think because they're very simple, but fucking up the way that Kurt Cobain fucked up exactly is this really challenging thing and helps you like helps you see the song the way that the person who wrote and performed it sees it. And so obviously this loops back to Taylor where the most famous example being her 10 minute version of all too well, um, Mm -hmm. causing, causing Jake Gyllenhaal to instantly die in his home (laughs) Um, where everyone kind of knew who it was about when it came out, but like the, the level of intensity uh, between then and now with the re-release was ratcheted up like 1 billion percent yeah everyone's but, 10 years older and like
0: still yeah. holding that grudge funnily enough
1: <laughs> so, so it's what's important about these is that these are relations that artists had regarding attempting to gain back Um actually no we have a third one now that I think about it a third example so it was only very recently let me get an exact date uh so uh, 2012. Okay. It was 10 years ago, almost to the day. Um, it's, it'll be about a month uh, before the 10-year anniversary of this, that Metallica launched Blackened Recordings. Um, mm. And this was important because this was the label under which they, as a group, put in the joint ownership of their masters for the first time ever. And it's like, that's something to really think about, that Metallica, Mm. uh, one of the top five biggest bands in the world, in terms of, like, they made an entire 3D movie that was two hours long that no one liked or watched. Like, they had enough fuck you money that they made a very expensive movie knowing no one would enjoy it. Like... Can you imagine any other band making a two hour long movie that's in 3D and getting it into national theaters at all? Let alone I mean, like... I U2
0: or Coldplay, but that's about it, right?
1: Yeah. And those are also some of the biggest in the, in like the entire totally. world. Um, and even Metallica did not own the rights to their masters until about 10 years ago. And it took them mm. a truly fucking exorbitant amount of money to get that. Um, Mm. Because what's important to know about this, and this is endemic to capitalism, is people don't view intellectual property uh, anywhere close to the idyllic language that they paint it with. It is an Mm. asset the same way that, and this will become relevant later, things like Bitcoin and NFTs and whatever are assets. They're to be flipped, they're to be extracted, they're to be traded. They They don't represent anything. They are completely empty signifiers. Absolutely. Um, And this this ties back to Spotify, obviously, because all of these issues predate Spotify, but it's the exact same issue. Hmm. Like for Metallica, it's that it doesn't matter how big you are, and they definitely weren't living small. They had access to a lot of money, but no matter how much money they had, they didn't own their own work. Um, and couldn't like, they weren't allowed to buy it. It was like, Hey, can I purchase this famous story of the Beatles? Obviously that they, um, they split over, uh, par- largely because of the manager that they wanted to bring in after the death of their original manager. And Paul McCartney was like, this guy's a scumbag and will fuck us. So I'm going to break up the band. And the first thing that the new manager does right after the band gets broken up is auction off all the rights to, uh, to the Beatles material. Mm that even the Beatles only recently recovered. Um, You have Taylor Swift losing the rights to all of her uh, work. You have Drake being caught in this fucking Byzantine deal where, and especially in the wake of 360 deals for artists where a 360 deal for those uninitiated is um, you sign one deal with your record label, or sometimes it's with management and they take a percentage from everything. Like, Oh, you sold a t-shirt. You showed up on a TV show. You played a concert um like you were in a commercial for Sprite. We take a little bit of every single thing um, I haven't I
0: haven't heard a lot about 360 deals lately. I mean, I remember Paramore like signing one with Live Nation, I think with yeah. Live Nation like the concert promoters were actually the record label as well. Which it is strange
1: yeah, uh I think they kind of got phased out because a lot of bigger artists started being oh, like, yeah. this is absolute. It was at this point that our recording happened to temporarily fail, and so I'm going to clap a quick clave for you as an intermission before we return to our conversation about Spotify with Richard S. He. Thank you. And now back to our conversation with Richard S. He. Excellent. He's back. Okay. Um, yeah, it seems like a lot of 360 deals seem to die on the vine based on um, people of the Beyonce or Jay-Z level catching yeah. wind of how like vampiric they were. Um, I would guess they could still exist, but just under a different name. Because then it, uh, it ties into the same uh, Actually, let, let me let me pause on that thought for a bit and get back to Spotify. So yeah. all of these notions are built around the fact that the the commodity form of music, to think in the most crass terms, is not owned by the artist. It's it's a very basic ownership of of the means of production problem. And the minute that you don't own the means of production, but you are the primary labor, um, this is the classic Instance that Marx talks about of alienation from your labor. They have to force you to keep working. If Taylor Swift stops recording and playing concerts, Scooter Libby doesn't get any money from this record. People aren't going to want Taylor Swift records forever. They want those records so long as she stays in the public consciousness. So you have to crack. I I would disagree with that
0: slightly. I think that runs counter to some of the trends that have been happening um, within song publishing in particular. Because are you aware of like hypnosis songs?
1: Um, I was going to bring that up in a bit of the yeah. mystifying turn of Neil Young. Um, the cult, the culture war battle, not really making any sense if you include, yeah, Neil Young's other. So we yeah, wind up it, having that in in some instances, but there are, that seems you seem to need to cross a certain th- threshold as an artist.
0: Um, I guess so. Like, it's hard to quantify. I mean, yeah. Hypnosis Songs are this, like, fund um, partly established by Nile Rodgers in, like, 2018, right? And um, they take venture capitalist money. And in the last few years, they've been very prominently buying up the both the songwriting and or recording catalogs of a lot of huge artists. Um, they bought Bob Dylan for, like, half a billion dollars. Yeah. And... um The appeal to the artists is pretty understandable because often it's like legacy acts who are aging, who, um, you know, they, you know, they don't have that much life ahead of them (laughs) to (laughs) put it that way. Um, but it makes sense for them to cash out and basically have like fucking 500 million to fund their descendants for eternity or whatever. Um, so they're betting on that. Whereas hypnosis songs are essentially saying we want to hold these catalogs in perpetuity and perhaps the value will go up, even though um, even though streaming pays, like, less than pennies. So it's a very strange situation where, like, this is kind of becoming not the norm, but just a very frequent thing that's happening. Like, for some reason, um, yeah, songwriting catalogs have become just very, very desirable. And, like, no one can really make sense of the math of it, yeah. even on, like, a pro-capitalist, like,
1: interpretation. And like, doesn't make sense. Neil Young famously sold his catalog, or not famously, I should say. This part was actually rather underreported. In mm. the same week that his open letter to Spotify went live and eventually hit he, he had his music removed. Um, he also sold his catalog to Hypnosis. He sold 50%, I believe. Oh. A what, 50% uh, stake. That's that's still a, a huge amount. Um, yes. yeah. uh, and so we wind up getting obviously these these muddled um, this is sort of endemic to the problem of turning these kinds of discussions into purely culture war because the yes, positions exactly. of the culture war are highly dependent on uh, like social variables rather than necessarily these, necessarily these mechanical ones. Uh, but yeah, we, we see this problem predating Spotify of the minute that the artist gets alienated from their labor. Um, So obviously this as you probably, that's a really good counterexample. It doesn't quite 100% hold, but you do need to keep, you do need to keep these things in circulation. And the classic thing of like, if it winds up being worth a lot of money, I want to be the one getting that money and not them. And if it's money based on someone else's labor, that's great because this achieves the ultimate capitalist dream of passive income,
0: Um, (laughs) which
1: But the reality is there is no such thing as passive income. Someone has done labor and you're the one getting the money. Like you've stolen it from something. (laughs) You can't be a landlord without like tenants. Exactly. And so Spotify merely inherited this problem. Now, certainly they intensified it because we are hearing from artists who are around, even in that really ugly time in the 90s where alternative bands were getting signed to major labels, then kicked off. Uh, before a record could come out. So they're in debt to the major for albums that never got released. And then they go to yeah. an independent who fucks them over too. Even in those environments, very bad, very vampiric, they enter the era of streaming and suddenly they can't afford to pay their bills. So, like, so it's this is not to defend Spotify. Spotify took a problem and made it worse, but it's important to understand mechanically that they did not invent this problem. This actually loops back to a, a thing I've said about the MCU quite a bit, which I, if you like movies, you're going to have antagonism towards the MCU for all the obvious reasons that you've heard from a million mm-hmm. people. Um, and all of it's true. That's not not necessarily to strongly challenge that stuff. Um, but the bigger the bigger meta problem is that just like with recorded music, film studios have wanted literally since the 1910s, when, when they started coming into being in the 1920s where the Golden Age of Hollywood existed. The Golden Age of Hollywood may be looked back fondly now by certain critics who are tired of the MCU, but it's well noted in historical records and journals as being a hyperbolically vampiric abusive time to, to be in movie making. Like, starlets like... uh like the Black Dahlia, um, we get why like these really horrific stories of the amount of abuse they suffered prior, uh, prior to early deaths. We see the number of early deaths based on like mm-hmm. barbiturate and quaalude abuse and stuff like that. We see, um, uh, what's her the lady who played uh, the main girl in Wizard of Oz, uh, Judy my, Garland. Judy Garland, yeah, who yeah. famously got. Like her her brain turned inside out by a combination of uh, meds that she was given, both legally and illegally, and then mm. also abusive, uh, uh, abusive behavior on set and out of set. Um, so we see all these kinds of things, and we retroactively sort of validate it because we like the movies more, but the mechanic was the same. They were massively defrauding the people who worked for them, all in pursuit of the one thing these massive capitalist enterprises built around art want. Which is a big lever you can pull that gives you one billion dollars every time you pull it. Exactly,
0: and once so, that's like
1: as rational and free
0: from risk as possible. Yes, even though these days, like they're willing to spend like nine hundred million to make a profit of one hundred million after all
1: expenses, like very strange. Yeah, there, there there's uh, like we there's no <laughs> small bets anymore. Yeah, we we get the same, and, and this obviously leads to that's the bigger thing that I think is killed cinema. If you, if you want to use the word killed, I I think that's a little bit Mm. strong, but fits the kind of mold, which is the cost of production has ballooned to a point where you're not going to see risk anymore. And that's not because of the MCU. That's because of these intractable problems of the intersection of capital with filmmaking. The MCU is the face of the thing that can survive in the wake of that, but that's not, the thing that generated the problem. And so likewise, we go back to Spotify, and Spotify in many ways is like the MCU of the music world. This is the thing labels have wanted forever. Oh, we can... Because labels never gave a shit about people stealing music. They gave a shit about losing money. That's it. They don't give a fuck how many people or how few people hear uh, a piece of music. Like, whatsoever. so the the fact that they can take suddenly this like oh everyone wants to just have music for free well what if we just like get billions of dollars from them uh and that people don't blink anymore okay we can we can mine this uh we can mine this for eternity if anything the fact that spotify seemed to quell the consumer end of angst which was very prevalent mm. in the 80s going into the 90s and a bit in the early 2000s Um, it actually since you're from Australia this would have affected you substantially more because I know the uh, the import costs for uh, well actually the cost of domestic production for things like CDs and tapes in uh, Oceania and also like East Asia is through the roof um, Mm. to the point where often imported music can be cheaper that's why we wind up seeing so many like Japan only bonus tracks is to encourage the Japanese audience to buy the domestic record that's more expensive, rather than literally having it cost less to fly a copy from across the planet. Um,
0: totally, it's amazing um, that that still model still like it, that model still exists in
1: Japan yeah. as well. It's where we get really fascinating. Like, I only saw recently—this total sidebar—but who gives a shit? Um, yeah. I only saw recently a physical copy of a J-pop record. Oh my God, they're amazing! Mm. Like they're the it. It was like this little book. Like it didn't have the the dimensions of like a normal record. It straight up looked like a little book. It had like two books inside of it. It had like thirty two high gloss photos. It had two CDs that each only had wow. like three songs on them. But it's this. It becomes one mm. of those like if you know it's going to be a high cost production, anyways. The actual. Difference in how much money it costs to make that packaging like archive quality for just basically a glorified single or EP is not that much more than putting it out in like a normal like disc package. Totally. And so you get these like like, really gorgeous albums. It's amazing. And these
0: days, like Western pop records don't even have lyrics printed in them, like for the majority of them. So,
1: yeah. And so you wind up looping this back uh looping this back to the Spotify problem once you solve the consumer end where there's no there's no longer any more angst you're not paying 25 dollars for an album that has 12 songs but you've maybe only heard two cuz like four have been released to the radio but two never got picked up so like that feeling of how much you'd gamble and sometimes lose we see it lionized Mm. by certain people who are like, well, you used to spend time with records and learn to love them. And you go, you are writing out all the people who bought a couple records, went, I don't like most of this music, and went on to other hobbies. Especially in
0: the major label system where pop music was, you know, for a long time built around singles. And,
1: you know, they invented the word filler for a reason. Yeah. And we... We also get this weird pseudo history um, that's built around sometimes when I I very much hate to say that I'm not the center of the universe. But when (laughs) people when people like me talk about what it is to consume music as art, at some point you want to shake them and be like, we are not the majority by a long stretch. The fact that the number one used feature on Spotify is artist radios. That's not just because it's the free thing that remains use many people remain free users with the ads because that actually satisfies them. The number of people, you know, that only know the radio singles of certain artists is because they actually don't care to listen Mm. to a full 80 minutes of Nicki Minaj. Mm. They want one or two songs that they think are pretty good. And then they want to move on. Like, They want music to be the background of their commutes, of their shopping for groceries, of uh, little moments like that. Like, they're not... They're they're time at work. They're not looking to have, like, this intense personal relationship that some people are, me included, you included, many of our listeners included. Like, that's not the normal relationship as much as we love it.
0: Yeah, ultimately, that's why Spotify is so successful, because they've turned music into a utility. It's like having music on tap, you know, where before yeah. you had to get like, you, you, you had to like walk out and go to the well to fetch your water to shower with or whatever. It's yeah. Music on tap, just turn it and
1: it's there. And the classic thing of like, you used to have to put on a radio station, but then you'd also have to like trust that that station wouldn't ever play stuff that you thought sucked ass. Yeah. Um, this became a big problem if like, uh, we can point specifically to the death of rock music in the popular space based largely around how radio didn't know how to how, what to do with it after a while where if you listen to alt rock radio in the 80s you're hearing one it's largely left of center dial uh position to get it and you're getting things like r e m you're getting uh dinosaur junior you're getting uh you know uh screaming trees you know all this like wonderful mm-hmm. varied Alternative music. Early 90s hits, Nirvana breaks, you know, grunges everywhere. You start getting these better dial placements so regular people can actually fucking get the station. They don't have to live within walking distance of a college. Um, But somewhere in the mid 90s, they start putting on, frankly, some of the worst goddamn music I've ever (laughs) heard just because it also happens to be alternative rock. Because, you know, every genre has greats, every genre has schlock, and they start who fondly looks back on i don't know candlebox or like mm. mid era bush um it's like a classic a couple-
0: example of like a counterculture art form being co-opted and gentrified ultimately yeah. and maybe that it wasn't even
1: their intent but that was where it ended up you know and so we wind up getting in america we get uh communications act uh the clear water clear communications act i think that's what's called clear channel communications act that heavily commodifies radio and allows for block programming that literally was illegal prior to that um and this makes almost every station that like oh you listen to you know alternative rock well it's going to be the same set of like 400 songs across every single station in the country save for like five Oh, you listen, oh, you like classic rock. Same goddamn thing. Or before you'd get these crazy deep cuts from like, oh, here's a Captain Beyond cut. Here's a fucking Nidralog cut. Who's even heard of this band? Boom. We got (laughs) Lady of the Lake playing. No, it's the exact same handful of songs forever. Uh, And at that point, especially as you're feeding them more and more major stuff, like you turn on an alternative rock station a handful of years ago, you get fucking Imagine Dragons and 21 Pilots playing. And then you turn on the hip hop radio station and you have like ASAP Rocky. uh, You have Kendrick Lamar, like no fucking duh rap beats out rock in that environment. Totally, Yeah. You give me only the, like I learned to love Taylor Swift. First I saw pictures of her. I heard all these stories. I was a sneering, you know, rock and jazz and prog guy and all this kind of stuff. I don't know who the artist is. I hear this story about Romeo and Juliet or something. And it's semi-modern. I'm like, damn, that melody is really fucking good. And I'm like half crying to it. The first time I hear it, I'm like, I instinctively know where the melody is going. I'm like, damn, this is a great song that was Taylor Swift with. And I'm like, fuck, fuck. That was amazing. Fuck. (laughs) Same, same thing with Lady Gaga. Like, you know, I, I was like a late teen at that point and, a lot dumber, but same thing. I hear just dance come on the radio and I'm like, holy fuck, you know, this grabs me by the throat. So it's, it's no real wonder that we see these things, um, die out, but this also in part models what music is to a great deal of people and the kinds of experiences people have with music. And so the fact that Spotify can replicate that for people Obviously, cuts out a lot of the angst. It's like, oh, and now I don't even have to pay money for it. Like, as a free user, yeah, I'll get a 30 second ad, but you get that with radio anyway. So it's like Mm -hmm. the big problem of what happens if my radio station turns to shit. Well, I can base it on, you know, this one artist that I really like. And hey, if I don't like a song, I can thumbs down it, just like you could do with Pandora and other services like that before. But it, you know, it, oh, that's fantastic. The fact that we've, settled the contradictions to go back to sort of Marxist language Yeah, for both the label and for the user actually has made, there's a weird benefit to it in that it's really highlighted specifically the contradictions for the artist regarding Spotify. Cause like that has to take center stage. That's the only thing that remains. Mm, exactly. Like, like we get this seemingly perfect product. And then you look at like everyone from all kinds of genres. So I I've watched similar things from like from death metal bands. I've watched stuff from Jason Isbell, who is no longer a small country act. He's a, he's making a decent bit of moving a decent bit of units. Um, You see pop artists talk about it. Rap artists talk about it. Uh, You see like jazz artists talk about it where they show like, I've gotten X number of plays, and here's my check for like one dollar and seventy cents. The- yeah,
0: and you um you compare that to like Spotify's own rhetoric, which is yeah. um Daniel Ek, you know the CEO, has said very very often that Spotify exists to help one million artists to be able to live off their art. Um, that's something he'll say very often in like the artist for Spotify website, which is a website designed to help artists, like, navigate the streaming algorithm and playlists, and supposedly gives you all these tools to be successful, but it's like, you've created these conditions, and um, this whole one million artists thing, it's like, just not true. Like, they're not putting in any, like,
1: any steps to make that viable, like, ever. So that's where we get certain things, like, where the question of where these revenue numbers come from starts becoming Mm -hmm. this really big, it seems like this really fine grain point, but it only become it. The fine grain point balloons out to this very major component for discussing these things precisely because as you work through all the mechanics of something like how this works, the precise leverage point for where the rhetoric falls apart starts becoming more and more specific. And to to a certain person who cares about problems, that makes it a bit more tedious and difficult to follow because a lot of people tend to follow more these broad rhetorical strokes. Like that's why we see all this traction for Spotify when it comes to like bad COVID information. When Joe Rogan is not the only person spelling bad uh COVID information, and he's also not the first one that Spotify's had present. Like, we have a number of musicians who are. Fucking stupid um, who promotes some very, very, very bad thoughts. Um, this isn't to say that Rogan shouldn't be held accountable for that, but it's more that like people are willing to be moved by these bigger rhetorical things. Granted the nearly a million dead in America alone. Mm. That's a pretty good reason to care about COVID stuff. Um, compared to something like I'm looking at uh, an exact number right now, the lowest recorded payout per play from Spotify is um just under uh three one thousandths of a penny. Right. Wow. Yeah.
0: Have we talked about the fact that Spotify doesn't actually like pay artists per play? Um it's that's- like this Yeah, it's this weird model where they take all the um like the revenue that's allotted for royalty payouts and like they divide it based on like percentage of like listing market share or something. It's very confusing. So like yeah, the more streams you have, the more you get paid for each individual stream.
1: Yeah, and they they obscure exactly how the uh, uh the formula works. The way that they say it, it makes it sound like it's a classic tip jar where it's like mm. if a $100 are put into the tip jar and you work 60% of the clock on on computer hours, then you get $6 and the $4 goes to the other person that you worked with. And that's how they paint it, but that's not actually how it works. Um, And like people, like artists have wound up saying like, if we had some specific thing to look at, like specific number, we could debate that number. We could talk to Spotify about that number. And the Mm. infuriating thing is some, some people have gotten it. This is where unfortunately support for someone like Taylor Swift on my end has to drop back down because she famously held out. She famously held out of Spotify because of the fact that they don't fucking pay anyone. And she's like, I barely get money from my shit because of the weird rights ownership stuff that goes on. So, and I value my work, so I'm not going to do that. But this led to the least, the worst kept secret in the music industry of like the year that it happened of her people were able to meet with the Spotify people and work out a much more favorable rate, where basically like her plays were weighted significantly higher than other plays when calculating how much money she'd get, even for an individual play. The Beatles did the exact same thing. Um, I was not aware of that facet of it, because I
0: thought that her condition of joining Spotify was that they pay artists
1: royalties based on free streams as well. I, that was, that was a portion of it. Um, there was also the, like, I want to, you can't necessarily fault her for going, like, if you're going to be getting my shit, you better also be paying me. Um, the problem is also just that, like with any kind of scabbing scenario, the minute that one person breaks, instead of going, like, I'm going to stand in full solidarity for a long stretch. Now, granted, she did gain she did gain something for most artists, where most artists who sign up for Spotify don't gain anything for any artist. So it's mm. it's obviously complicated. And this isn't to like slag her. Um, because that was a pretty big thing to win for people. It's just the classic thing, especially in a Marxist mode, is what is going to sedate the revolutionary consciousness versus right, what is going yeah. to inflame it and what is going to give like liberation for people. Obviously that's a complicated thing. You can't throw that entirely on the back of one uh, pop artist even if she has a lot of clout and is, you know, doing mm. doing great work. That's not really fair because it's not a project for one person. And this sort of builds into <sighs> it becomes very necessary for people to stand together in the wake of That's right. Uh let's let's hop into this part. The fact that someone <laughs> in a tech company was able to get a hold of Spotify's API. So to clarify what an API is, it's a fancy kind of spreadsheet that computer programs use. And it's like a table of all of your information. Here's the ID for this song that's mapped to this album, that's mapped to this artist. Um, For every single song, every single album, and every single artist that's on Spotify, they got a hold of this. And then turned every single item into it into an NFT, all without uh, any attempt to reach out to any of these people to see if it was consensual uh, and immediately listed them for sale. Mm. Um, Of course, we don't even know what's for sale. Like, literally,
0: we don't know (laughs) what they are defining as the NFT. Is it the artwork? Is it the song?
1: Is it the recording? We don't know. Yeah, it's like the copy on the website says own your favorite song. But then when you look up the fact that these people don't own the rights to the song, it starts. Y- yeah, it raises very, very obvious mechanical questions of like, yeah, um, some information has come out in the wake of that. Um, So their argument for a little bit um, based on emails that they had with various people, including journalists and lawyers who got in contact with them and were making this information available was that uh, if an auction went through and was successful, they were going to hold the money and get in contact with the artist, and if the artist then authorized the sale post-facto, the artist would receive a cut of the money, and the person would get the rights. So, um, they were attempting to, like, hold an auction, and then for, like, your things in your house, and then go up to you and go, Someone's handed me 600 bucks, but they have to take your kid. Do you want to sell your kid for 600 bucks? <laughs> <Yeah>. Like <laughs> It's a
0: classic tech disruptor mentality thing where it's like, we're going to kick down your door. We're going to create this problem. And then like, you know, ask questions later, you know? Yeah.
1: And obviously this is all um, massively illegal. Um, yeah. And it turns out even with America's Byzantine copyright laws that only really protect so this sits at the other thing that like intellectual property um, isn't, isn't necessarily a bad notion, but as it stands in Western law, the legalist constraint of it highly favors massive rights holders. It doesn't favor mm-hmm. an artist. It doesn't favor a working musician. It favors Sony like <laughs> it, favors Scooter Libby. Um, but Even in that environment, you look at this and go, no, no, you really don't have a leg to stand on. Um, This leads to the really bizarre second tidbit of news that people have found through like. um, So people found through digging through LinkedIn and stuff like that, that the business actually launched about like two years ago. And at the launch party, they had Busta Rhymes and Noriega uh, perform, (laughs) which, which is. Weird that two years before you do anything, you have the money to do this. I mean, for anyone outside of, like, the tech business world, that seems really goofy. Like, how in the world do you... But that shit's based on phantom money anyway. Totally. You go to a VC guy, and you're like, hey, I want to ruin a bunch of working people's lives. Will you give me $50 million? And they're like, absolutely. Fuck every poor person. Do you want 100 <laughs> like, so. We then get from uh, discussions during there that they presumed that they were going to get sued and actually viewed the hubbub around getting sued as basically like free, um, free publicity that you can either pay for an advertising campaign or come right up to the line of getting sued and then drop the thing that's getting you sued. And now you're in public consciousness. And unfortunately, that's worked. Um... The hope for people like us is that everyone will go, you're in public consciousness the same, like as a piece of shit. Like Mm. everyone recognizes the names Bill Cosby and R. Kelly right now, but it is not for what they wanted to be recognized for. And, you know, God willing, it remains that they're viewed as monsters, you know, until either they magically like uh, change all of reality to make up for what they did or just whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about rehabilitative justice. I don't know what Stop. in the fuck they could possibly ever do, but like,
0: restorative justice by restoring, you know, our,
1: ourselves to like a past dimension where like none right? of ever happened. <laughs> Correct yeah. the timeline. Like, <laughs> yeah, this is this is a perfect scenario where it's like, all right, um, R. Kelly. So we want high speed rail across America, and it's really hard to find people to do it. So I'm going to pitch. Do you want to like? Do you want people? Do you want us to tell people that maybe? No, I know you did the human slavery thing too. Now you're out of luck. I don't even want you touching the railroad. Now that I think about it, God, what a horrible person. Oh, I made I made my own mood sour thinking about him. Oh, what a god awful man. But um, <laughs> uh, he's uh, ugh. but yeah, so like we wind up seeing uh. We wind up seeing these vectors emerge where they're like, yeah, no, no. We are fine with getting just barely sued because then everyone will everyone will know our name. And all we have to do is relaunch it in a way that some people like. And all of a sudden we've retroactively validated. And this sort of feels like. Mm because we live in a horrible parody of real life and no longer real life anymore. Like we departed real life quite a while ago, COVID and Trump and all that has been not the moment we left the shores of reality. These are sort of ephemera caused by leaving reality. Um, We're a deeply diseased universe. Uh, I've become in fact, a Cathar. I believe that God is real um, and he's evil and punishing us, and life us, yeah. is actually hell, and we must struggle against God. Yeah, mm. mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I've, I've suddenly become religious, but only in the sense that uh, I must wage war against the divine for leaving me in this rotten planet. <laughs> we must attack and dethrone God, it's like a Final Fantasy game or some shit. Absolutely, right. I mean. What is Final Fantasy about? But a bunch of virtuous femboys finding out that they live in a society that hates them simply for being ultra strong, ultra sexy femboys, and so they have to kill the only person responsible for it. God. Exactly, femboy supremacy. <laughs> Absolutely. We get femboys, we get cat boys, we get cat girls. We get we get we get. Uh, oh, oh man, I'm all about this shit. If you can put it on a body pillow, I support it. That's the apex. <laughs> That's that's the apex. The Darwinian in me is like, that's what that's what the final stage of humanity looks like. Whatever's on a body pillow. I wish I was kidding. I've been thoroughly poisoned by anime at this point.
0: <laughs> I respect it.
1: Um, uh, so we wind up to
0: hit peace. I'm going to yeah. posit something, right? I, I have a bad feeling that this is going to set a precedent, not for themselves, but for someone else to like yes. do it better. You know? Um, That's... To do it with actual cooperation with artists. Because there's one one thing I've heard recently is that, like, I listened to a podcast with, like, Devin Townsend and um, yeah. M. Shadows, like, the singer of Avenged Sevenfold, where Devin's just hearing out M. Shadows about all his ideas about NFTs in the metaverse and such. Um, he's at least fairly articulate, even if I don't agree with him. But he he's saying one thing, which is that, like, in seven years or whatever, like, all royalties for music will be distributed on the blockchain. And his reasoning behind that is um because supposedly it's like um verifiable and it's foolproof and whatnot and it's like transparent, right? You don't have to involve a record label in Fury. But however that also leads to a problem where the actual like royalty stream can be flipped and bought and sold as an asset like much more easily than the way hypnosis and all of them are doing it so yeah we may that may lead to a scenario where like artists are writing songs and then like instead of trying to profit off the royalties trying to profit off selling the nft of the songs like the the songwriting like rights or whatever which might lead to like more short term money for them but within the like broader music industry system
1: like breaks the you know breaks it even more we actually see intention from uh, documentation from hit piece for exactly mm-hmm. that kind of scenario. And this sort of pairs yeah. with Daniel X. um quite uh, it's, it's hard to stress how apocalyptic it is when a guy who owns the method of distributing your work to most of the people in the world, realistically is telling you that you have to produce music more often, or you will not yeah. make money and giving you tips also for how long your song should be and all these kinds of, that article he wrote is fucking bizarre and insanely yeah. out of line. Um, but it's just... So this, that actually ties into the thing I was um, was getting at before with Hit Piece is the capitalist acceleration of something Spotify already is. Much in the same exactly. way Spotify is an acceleration of what the frission of labels and peer-to-peer streaming was. Um, these things are logical antecedents of one another. I mean, that's sort of the thing that gets lost. And this is also why, like, if you've ever talked to your Marxist friends, they get really... And anarchist friends as well. This is one area where there's, like, complete agreement that when you break working people, and in this case, musicians are working people, um, the the people they directly surround themselves with are, are the same. When you break them from the direct control of, of their means of production, the direct ownership of that you start creating these weird contradictions that until you fix that base relation will mutate and mutate and mutate and mutate into these ever more Byzantine forms. Like the notion of selling the NFT, which is a representation of your revenue stream, which is itself a representation of your intellectual property rights, which itself is a representation of the song itself, or of the recording of the song, which is a representation of the abstract song, which doesn't exist, um, yeah. <laughs> is like quite literally. I'm describing the the series of legalist um, alienations that get out to, and you have someone say that the only real value is in this shadow of a shadow of a shadow of a shadow of the actual work. And realistically, when we get up to the point where you know people are saying like, "Well, the notion of trading intellectual property doesn't even make sense. How do you sell?" the notion of an idea like how how does that make sense Mm. that this would be turned into a commodity form and then we have someone go well what if i turn the notion of a commodity into a commodity and then sell the notion of that commodity as a new commodity um there's no upper limit to how far out you can alienate this like that that's sort of the we're at nfts now But NFTs are this extra dumb fuck layer on top of an already illusory version of a thing. And that's sort of the frightening thing. Is that like, no, we wouldn't be seeing that within like 25 years. But would you have get would you personally, you, Richard, in front of me now, have guessed that we would see anything like NFTs representing abstract revenue streams that you could sell 15 years ago? I'm going to say absolutely not. It seems <laughs> I don't know what I was fake. thinking about 15 years ago. It yeah. seems like a parody that someone of our political alignment would make up to make fun of capitalism. And exactly. other people Other people like us would be like, that's too on the nose. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. And now that it's
0: becoming normalized, it's just like we have to jump on board or whatever, you know, it passes us by, right?
1: Yeah. And, it, I mean, this is where we get this other... Um, this is going to sound half conspiratorial, but I swear to God this documentation of this. So we have things like the event on Jimmy Fallon where Paris Hilton shows yes. Jimmy Fallon her her board ape and Jimmy Fallon shows her his board ape Um, and then more recently Justin Bieber buys a board ape for the equivalent of 1.5 million dollars. Now it turns out that if you follow because of because of blockchain stuff, you can reverse analyze some of this stuff and you can find FEC filings and stuff like that. Um, These weren't, none of these were purchased by them. They were all purchased by a single company and then ownership was transferred. Now, this is a pretty normal thing you do when promoting a product. It's, you know, I'm going to pay off this thing and then hand it to someone who is an influencer and I want them to tell everyone about it. But one, this takes on questionable legal grounds if the person you give it to now no longer has to uh, say that this is like a paid thing. Like even on Instagram, you see fucking hashtag ad or on Twitter, you see promoted tweet or something like that. Um, and that's not just that's not just for shits and giggles. Like if if companies could avoid doing that, they absolutely would. They don't want to tell you that what you're hearing is fake and was a ad copy that someone wrote down for a rich person to say, they want you to think it's real. Um, So the fact that now we have these like weird spectacles of rich people pretending that they have organically run into NFTs. I mean, obviously we saw this before with like, there'd been um, hubbub around, around different kinds of influencers uh, turning out to have been receiving uh like kickbacks in order to pretend to X, Y, Z. It's just. No, it so like tired, fucking it's fucking cool. wall, you know, <laughs>
0: just astroturfing all around.
1: Yeah, it it's straight up like I felt by the beginning of this conversation that my brain was melting just because I've had a busy work week. <laughs> and now I'm thinking about just this part of the conversation and my brain is actually melting. Hmm, Because it's like it's. It's a spectacle-based false reality attempting to sell us on the value of a shadow of a shadow of a shadow that's designed never to pay out for us, only to pay Because that's the other thing, is that you see this because major institutions have bought into crypto. Um, They saw the hype, they've started investing into it, but the problem with any commodity is an investment in a commodity isn't, isn't money. So going back to sort of Marxist, brass tacks analytics of where does where does wealth come from the base layer is capital that's things like the land or that is a coal mine or this is a drill that can get the coal out of the coal mine like that's real wealth because that can generate stuff like a farm is real wealth Um, You then get money abstracted from there because, like, otherwise you'd have to barter and be like, oh, I can't get medicine unless I find a guy who has medicine and wants tomatoes. Like, oh, he has medicine, but he wants goats? Well, I don't have goats, so I guess I'm gonna die. Um, So, you know, you make money to be able to trade when you don't have the exact good. Blah, blah, blah. History money kind of stuff. Um, But then, like... Man, my brain has already turned to fucking goo. It's just, like, the the breakage of... uh Oh, it's a stock stuff. When you're buying stock in something, so, like, when you're investing in something the way that these big companies invested into crypto, you're not... You don't have the capital, which would be, say, the machines that are mining the crypto or things like that, and you don't have the money. You have, basically, the proto-NFT, uh, a mm. stock ticket that says this represents money you can cash out for now the difference is this is only one layer abstracted from reality so likewise with a bank if everyone who had money in banks withdrew in cash all the money they had you'd bankrupt the bank before everyone got their money because the bank doesn't actually have that much um and but we're generally kind of fine with that because the notion is that would require everyone to cash out at once but this represents a problem that you then can scale up to something like an NFT. Let's say I'm a big company and I drop millions of dollars into acquiring this stuff. I only have millions of dollars on paper if at some point I can get that money back. If I can never get this money back, if I can't get people to want to buy fucking Bored Apes, then it doesn't matter that I drop five million. I basically threw that money away. So you wind up getting these kinds of emotions typically because someone somewhere has dropped a lot of money as an investment and is frantically trying to kick up desire so that when you're buying, like let's say when you're buying Ethereum, you're buying Ethereum from one of a million fractured accounts that's maybe held by a bank. And this bank goes, who? Fuck yeah. Yeah. That's like, that's a weight off my shoulders because now I have real money and this guy has the fake money. If something terrible happens to the fake money fake money, and it crashes tomorrow, I don't give a shit because I got real money again. Because mm, ultimately, exactly. this ties back also to what songwriting royalties are. The people who, Scooter Libby doesn't care about Taylor Swift. He cares about, will this make me money? This is like the microcosm of the problems of the capital world, the world of capitalism, versus the world of people owning the means of production, uh, writ large. It, it becomes this. Tr- the only thing that trickles down is poison and uh, increasing psychosis and brain rot. Exactly. Like
0: the whole thing is. It really. Ma- it does not make sense for anyone, including like the people at the absolute top. They just find a way. Found a way to like gamify the system in a way
1: that in theory works them right (laughs) it's like i i have to i'm half doing this conversation so that i can make sense of it in my own oh yeah absolutely i'm gonna have to re-listen to this and like take notes (laughs) because it's like (laughs) yeah i mean because this is exactly like when i was riffing on twitter about the same kind of thing and then when you were riffing it's and other people that we know that like uh we both know a lot of people who write about music, who are musicians, who work at labels, who work at magazines, all this kind of stuff. Everyone's basically on the same page, but it's this, it almost feels like these structures are deliberately Byzantine and one million okay. layers abstracted from reality so that you feel like you're crazy before you get anywhere close to understanding them.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that that's awesome. People who are familiar with like Marxist analysis,
1: let alone like, the average consumer who yeah. in the free tier, you know? And it's like, it's not even just those analytics, but then you also have to know, like, the field that you're analyzing here, where a lot of these mm. details are deliberately kept obscure. Fuck yeah. you, Sonny Bono. <laughs> <laughs> that little rat man. Cher was always the good one. Um, she must. Yeah, it's just like... Well, at least it will only get worse and then the Earth will die, I guess. Mm. I guess that's the silver lining. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I so mean, on I that theory... <laughs> I can put forward, like, a couple of potential positives, I guess. Which is, um... I, I've talked about the idea before of, like... Actually, no, my, my idea's irrelevant. It's not about me. Um, there is, uh um a union called the union of musicians and allied workers i believe who um they are advocating for spotify to raise their rate to one cent per stream basically and um that would most-
1: massively change the lives of a lot of working musicians
0: correct and that's over a hundred times the current royalty rate at least for um for for master recordings right um and so one of their most prominent members is um Damon Krakowski, who he was in the, like, lo-fi indie band um, Galaxy 500, I think. Oh, great band.
1: Great yeah. great
0: band. Um, so he is Damon K or Dada underscore drummer at, tw- on Twitter. And he tweets about this stuff a lot and in ways that are, like, really uh, relevant to, like, the current paradigm because we have people still talking about like Steve Albini and what he wrote in the nineties or whenever. And, um, to a degree that still applies, but, um, we've got to update like our sources. Yeah. So I would say follow him. He has a Substack. um, union of musicians and allied workers. Um, they've also, I think through their campaigning, they've also gotten like the UK government. To have a series of hearings about the digital royalty rate um, which has also gotten a lot of musicians involved um, to speak to parliament there interestingly like one of them is Niall Rogers who co-founded Hypnosis songs so he's like trying to advocate to raise the royalty rate supposedly for like musicians as laborers while also owning the back catalogs very strange
1: yeah. Um, uh, uh uh coalitions make strange bedfellows. <laughs> absolutely. Um all right, coming back to
0: my my idea. A while back I proposed an idea that it's basically like Spotify but like built on microtransactions. So the idea is that like if you are paying 1 cent per stream, per song, instead of like just raising Spotify's monthly payment to whatever imagine like having a wallet you say say you have like a spotify wallet that has like thirty dollars or something in it and every time you stream a song one cent is taken out of that um to me like in theory that's very affordable like that's where the digital royalty rate should have been set like 12 years ago or whatever when spotify were founded in the first place because it's like in theory if you listen to a hundred songs a day you're spending one dollar a day. And that's not going to break the bank for anyone, right? But that yeah. has lifted the royalty rate, like, a hundred times. So I'm not saying this is going to, like, fix Spotify or fix capitalism, but it's, like, not that hard to think of a mechanism where it at least functions, you know? Yeah, Maybe and it's Spotify like Spotify could charge, like, uh, an administration fee on top of that
1: just for their own profits. I mean, anyways. I even think, like, the amount that I listen to music versus what i pay on spotify and then because i'll admit i'm saying this not just as someone who cares about this i'm saying this also as a longtime spotify user because yeah to get back to the consumer to get back to the consumer things it is the only thing that interfaces across every single stereo that i own and interact with in multiple houses like when i visit my mom i can use it there. When I visit my friend's house, I can use it there. When I go to work, I can use it there. When I'm in the car, I can use it there. Like, literally nothing has replicated that. And I don't think we're going to... This is... I got I got called a libertarian from someone based on saying this, which I find <laughs> fucking insane. Um, yeah. And like, no I'm literally a communist, right. but okay. Um, yeah, Of saying like, we're not going to be able to simply go so this, this is the part where we sort of touch on like pie in the sky dreams. We see some people yeah. going like, well, the way around it is people need to go to their library more and check out records there. And it's like, not going to happen. Not going to happen. This isn't to say that they should, should or shouldn't. That's clearly not going to happen. Oh, people should mm-hmm. um, go to their local record store more. A lot of people are going to their local record store. The problem is most people don't, love music that way which is hard to fathom sometimes and sucks hmm. but like that's like i'm willing to pay 30 bucks for a nice quality vinyl of a record that i really love that has nice packaging if you tell another person they should spend 30 for something that has basically two songs they want they're gonna tell you to fuck yourself and that's even I mean so that's like, the latest.
0: Yeah, if you follow the rabbit hole of production and the environment, the environmental
1: impact of vinyl, like that's a whole another kind of worms. Oh yeah. You know. So it's yeah. like uh, we then have like as much as I would love to see Spotify roll out some more features to be more strongly competitive with Spotify, the reality is the amount that they would need to do versus the size of their team and how much liquid capital and labor you would need in order to do that. Mm. Not not realistic. I'd love it. I if I had a if I had a magic wand, I would basically give Bandcamp all of Spotify's features and call it a day. Be like, just go on Bandcamp. You can buy the record and you can do all this other stuff. But that would require a magic wand. So, yeah. Short of that, like you either have to make a better program than Spotify that does all the things that people value, because um, because that's the other thing. Spotify is not hurting for money they are not operating in the red when it comes to the amount of income they make versus the amount of money they pay out that is not the problem <laughs> they they have quite a lot of money um the problem is just who gets the money the classic problem under capitalism and that's where i think about how much i pay for streaming services that for like tv and movies that i'm going to be honest i barely use i'm spending most of my time with music and books and writing um and half for a long time. That's just my lifestyle. It's not better or worse mm. than people who like TV. Just how I live. And I'm like, if I knew that it was going to go to the artist, would I pay fifty bucks a month for for a streaming service? Fucking absolutely. Are you absolutely. kidding? I pay like, hundred dollars a month. Yeah. Right. Are you like a hundred dollars a month? I used to, as a teen, I would get uh, my paycheck from my job that I worked during the summer, and it would be about three hundred some bucks. Uh, not a huge amount, but it's, it's this part time job. And I would literally go to the record store and I would make a stack that was like 25 albums tall and I'd whittle it down until I had $300 worth of CDs. Then I'd check out and I'd go home. This is every paycheck like I so most people aren't like that, obviously. But yeah, that's more to say, like, if I had the ability to just be like. Yeah, here's a fucking, like, blank check for 200 bucks. I'll, you know, let me listen to anything that I want to as many times as I want, but I will hurl money at you. You will not know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> And that's where you get, sometimes people go like, well, why don't you go on Bandcamp and just buy this? And that's... Again, the problem comes with something like Spotify... I have a rapidity of how I can switch between music and discover music and be like, Oh, here's a random like, um, like noise and drone, like duo that I found out about, Oh, they have all their records on Spotify. I find out about mm-hmm. like, Oh, um, one of my newest finds from last year was, uh, this really fucking great experimental electronic duo called prolapse. Um, signed to house mountain, fucking phenomenal. They put out this massive eight-hour-long record broken up into um, two-hour installments every Solstice and Equinox. Um, Oh, wow. Find out about them? Yeah, all their stuff's available and easy to stream, regardless of whether I'm at work or whatever. I wound up getting their stuff on Bandcamp, but it's like... Yeah, if I had the ability to, like, the mere act of discovering them flooded them with money... Yeah, you almost couldn't name a price that would be too high. The problem ultimately is, like, I know that money is not going to be going to them. And so it's this, like you were saying, it's this little mechanical thing that, like, if this union gets their way and I know that you're getting a penny per stream, even something like a penny per stream suddenly becomes a radical change compared to how certain people are getting paid out. You bump it up to two cents a stream. Like, oh, this Death metal band gets ten thousand streams on this song. That's like that's like two thousand bucks, yeah, however, even
0: so, if even if we were to raise the royalty rate to a penny per stream, the part of the problem is the way that royalties are distributed and divided up in the first place. like there's not there's not like a linear flow of money from the consumer to Spotify administration to the creator. There's like yeah. performing rights societies in between and all these things. And in theory, they're supposed to make artists' lives easier, but do they really? I don't know. I'm a member of one or two, but um yeah, I, I wish we could just like cut the head off, like destroy, abolish every single like existing music copyright law and like put a bunch of people in a room and say, "Hey, you're not allowed to like leave until you fix all this." And you write like a new constitution or whatever, you know.
1: What's really funny <laughs> is you table this stuff, and this is the fundamental thought of uh, it gets viewed from people outside of it as like, "Oh, well, this is what um, uh, commies and anarchists tend to do. They want to dream up whole new laws and then force them upon people." And you go, "Well, yeah, hmm. because the laws don't work and no one likes them." But what? You e- you even dial back a bit though, and this is technically baked into even liberal democracies. That's on paper why constitutions from um yes. New Zealand and Australia to uh Western Europe to North America and a number of South American countries and a number of African countries have these clauses that say like if a quorum is reached, you can redraw the constitution. Um mm. The problem, obviously, is that very few nations actually take up on this. Because it turns out that if massive institutions of uh, wealth and le- uh, like social leverage happen to really like the way that things are arranged, it's very mm. hard to get them to change in any way. Yeah, um, yeah it's... Uh, yeah, I definitely don't... Li- I get into a lot of arguments with other artist friends of mine um, mm. about... Basically the same thing of like. I'm normally one of the vocal anti IP people and then having to articulate that it's it's not the notion that artists would own their work. That one I have muddy, complicated feelings about of like, at what point does it become a social good versus a personal good, all that kind of stuff. But the laws as they're written now are meant to make artists think that they're represented and protected while in reality only protecting things like so Sony can work with Spotify but you, the person who's uploading to Spotify doesn't fucking matter. You're like you're an ant to gods. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that union again because oh, oh baby, we love unions here. Um, right. Is the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers? Yeah, they're um, they're a fantastic group that I've been seeing um, a lot of buzz around on at least Twitter. Um, hopefully, they catch up more buzz. They they sounds like they're doing fantastic work. Uh, yeah. And this has been uh, this has been Richard S. he um, again writer. Uh, tell people tell people where they can find your stuff.
0: Thank you, thank you. So um, I'm on Twitter at RSH underscore E-L-L-E. I post my articles there. I have like a Contently page there that collects my work. Um, Probably like the most relevant piece to all of this is one that I wrote about Dr. Luke um, and the Kesha case where he abused her and um, still retains like enormous amount of like financial and to a degree creative control over her work. Um, that's like this 7,000 word piece about the limitations of the idea of cancellation because people think he's been cancelled but he really hasn't and a lot of that has to do with um, again like royalties and ownership and all the things that we've discussed Um, yeah so yeah check it out and I'm also working on a screenplay which I will tell you off record because it's a bit secret but <laughs> yeah. oh man I'm
1: excited. Yeah, fuck every listener. This is for me now only. <laughs> All right, so yeah, so before the show we chatted, we normally obviously for long-time listeners will know this. Normally the guest uh gets to pick uh the music. We didn't have a mid-music break here just cuz we are rolling on it. Um yeah. so uh yeah, um you had picked uh specifically the title track from uh, King Woman's most recent record, Celestial Blues. Um, Hell but is I'm there... <laughs> Damn right it is. I, I wrote a review of it myself, and it's just... God, what a... F... The fact oh, the fact that she... The front woman, obviously, has all these different side projects from, like, mm. bedroom pop to horrorcore hip-hop to, to shoegaze. She does all of them so well mm. that... I was under the impression she might not actually return to King Woman. I thought it was going to be like, you know, she's going to put out one to two records of any given style and just keep moving. The fact that she came back and then delivered a record that was so strong, I thought it was just this really wonderful gift. Um, It seems to be her main project, right? As far as I can tell? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, obviously, especially with someone who's as multi-talented as that and is demonstrably multi-talented, you don't necessarily want to take for granted any one specific project. Um, totally. Hmm. Because, you know, we, we see that a lot, like uh, the early days of someone like Stephen Wilson, where he was rotating so quickly between, you know, like incredible expanding mind fuck and base continuum and uh, obviously porcupine tree. And then like all these other like uh, Blackfield, all these different kinds of projects. Um, where you were never guaranteed that you're going to get two records from one project you know the fact that I don't know it's just like oh man this fucking rules um to be fair, I think they had been I think I think the record lit, uh record contract they signed did require them to record more than one album so <laughs> feels like it was yeah. inevitable but um, sure yeah still uh, did you have any like uh reason behind picking it or just that it fucking rules. Oh, just rules. Just thinking about
0: Chris Esfandiari, you know, Renaissance woman that she is. Very cool lady.
1: Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a good enough reason. Um, all right, yeah. So uh, next time it should be me and Gareth talking about John Darniel's new book. Um, uh, we're gonna see if that actually is the very next episode. These things, you know, change around in production, and we keep it raw, so we never fucking know. Um, that's a fancy way of saying we don't plan very well. Uh, uh, So this is uh, This has been uh, Richard and this is now Celestial uh, Blues By King Woman
0: Celestial Blues
1: I'm dancing the